1 Corinthians uh, 15, 1 through 10. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Good afternoon again, and happy Easter. Uh, let me move this to the middle so I don't fall off the stage. Um, guys, the good news of Easter is this. Death is defeated. Sin is forgiven. And God is offering you real and a lasting hope because Jesus is alive. We're here to talk about the most important event in human history, centered on the most important person in human history. You've heard me say before that Jesus has no equal in terms of his influence. He lived 2,000 years ago in this small lakeside town in the ancient Middle East, born to this poor peasant family, yet this guy's had more, a more meaningful impact on history than any other person. You got more songs that have been sung about him, more paintings that have been painted of him, more books that have been written about him, more lives dedicated to him than anyone else in the history of the world. The way that we measure time is B.C. and A.D. B.C. meaning before Christ, and A.D. is the Latin Anno Domine, which means the year of our Lord. And the two big holidays that we celebrate uh, uh, the, the person of Jesus, the two big holidays associated with him, which is celebrated by billions of people around the world, are Christmas, where we commemorate his birth, and Easter, where we commemorate his resurrection. His resurrection is so significant in its scope that it's actually the reason that Christians have set aside Sunday to gather weekly for worship. You see, the resurrection makes all the difference. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no savior, no salvation, no forgiveness of sin, no eternal life to look forward to, no hope for our future. And the billions and billions of people who today and throughout history worship Jesus are just gullible fools because they believe that, that their hope is found in a guy who's still dead. I mean, even the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, including the passage that we're going to be looking at this afternoon, he admits this when he says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. On the other hand, 
On the other hand, if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection happened, if Jesus did rise from the grave in victory over evil, sin, and death, then it is without question the most beautiful, marvelous, significant event in all of human history. And I think that makes it more than worthy. That's what makes it more than worthy of our consideration this afternoon. And so with that, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we dive into these verses, we're going to look at three important aspects of the resurrection. Three important aspects. Number one, that it is central to the human story. Number two, that it is historically true. And lastly, that it just changes everything. Number one, the resurrection is central to the human story. For this point, I want to turn your attention to the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. The man writing is a guy named Paul. He's an apostle uh, who wrote most of the New Testament, and he's writing to a group of Christians uh, that he knows and that he loves. But these are Christians who've forgotten sort of the main point of the Christian message. And so that, that's the context he's writing to. And here's what he says in verse 1. He says, Now... I, Paul, would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. He's saying, I would remind you of the gospel, which means good news, that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, that is, unless you believed in vain. So what is, it, what is this good news that Paul's talking about? He talks about this gospel that he preached to them. He's like, you receive this gospel, you stand in this gospel, you're being saved by this gospel. So what is it that they've received and stood, stand on and are saved by? He clarifies in verse three. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. That means that what he's about to say is imperative. It's of first importance. He says, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, that phrase right there, that, those verses are the gospel in sort of bite-sized form. That is the gospel, the good news that they received, that they stand on, that they're being saved by in bite-sized form. That Christ came, that he died for our sins, was buried, and then rose in victory. I want you to notice how twice he mentions that these things happened in accordance with the scriptures, he says. Now, why is that significant? Why is it significant that, so significant that Paul mentions twice in like one sentence that this all happened in accordance with the scriptures? It's because it tells us that the Easter story is actually central to the much larger story that we find in the whole Bible. You see, the whole Bible tells us the story of God and how he relates to humanity. And the resurrection is a key point to that story. You see, the Bible is not primarily a manual for how we should live, although it can be helpful for that. 
The Bible is not primarily a roadmap for your best life now, although it does have some good advice. It is not primarily even a love letter from God. No, the Bible is primarily one unified work, one unified message, one unified story about God's amazing grace centered on the person of Jesus. And in the beginning of that story, in the first few chapters of the Bible, we learn that God created the heavens and the earth as his good design, reflecting the beauty of his glory, that when he created time itself, when he spun the stars into their places, when he coded the DNA makeup of every creature, when he formed mankind from the dust of the ground into his own image and his own likeness, All of it, he said, was good. And humans were uniquely created to know God and to multiply and to spread the blessing of his reign to the ends of the earth. That is what we're made for. That is the good life that we're all created for. In Genesis 3, though, human sin enters creation and then everything starts to spiral out of control. And I think we feel and see the effects of that to this day, don't we? See, the reason that every single one of us longs for something more, for something other, for something better and something more whole is because we're made for a world that is good and perfect, a world that sin has not broken. I think deep down, deep down, we all know this. We all have a sense that things aren't the way that they should be. No one really argues against that. Like regardless of your faith background, regardless of the creed that you grew up with, we all can sort of agree that something has gone horribly wrong with our world. Things like disease and disasters and death just don't seem right to us. And if we think about it long enough and hard enough, I think we also know that something has gone horribly wrong, just not out there in the world, but but down here in our hearts, too. This is why Blaise Pascal famously said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. You see, the scriptures reveal that, that sin is the reason for this vacuum we feel in our hearts. Sin is the reason that things have gone wrong in the world. When the first humans decided that instead of turning to God as the source of all that is good and true and beautiful, instead of turning to him, we would be self-made gods in our own image and decide for ourselves what is true and what is a lie, decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil, decide for ourselves what is satisfying and what is not. I mean, God, God, by his grace, like wrote us into his story. And then in our sin, we made this feeble attempt to write him out of our story. But thank God that the story of humanity doesn't end right there. Thank God that the story of humanity doesn't end with that bad news, leaving us searching for a reality that's just far out of our reach. No, in fact, 
the central point of Christianity. The central point of the Christian message is that God did not leave his creation to be destroyed by sin, but instead he, he, he came to us. He came for us. He actually entered into the human story. The creator stepped into creation to bring new life where death once reigned, to provide hope for the hopeless and comfort for those who mourn. Salvation for sinners like us. Jesus is God's solution for all that went wrong. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that because of what Jesus did, dying for our sins and rising from the grave, because of this, the grave is no longer our final stop. And now we wait for something called the final resurrection. And because we know that Jesus' grave is empty, that his tomb is empty, we know that his payment for our sin is complete. Think about it like this. Like imagine that you're one of five kids in your family. Um, I know, probably like a Mormon family, right? Like a big family, right? So one day, one day, four of you kind of sneak out, decide to build like this, this, this moat around your house to make it look like a castle, right? Like bad idea, right? So you start digging up your, gar your garden, you start digging in your front yard, you start tearing up the concrete, and then suddenly like your parents wake up and they come outside and you're just like, oh man, game over, right? Game over, like your life is done. Remember, four of you came out to do this. One of you stayed behind. And imagine that your older brother, who's upstairs the whole time, that he comes out and he comes to your defense. He offers to be punished in your place, even though he played no role in that mess. So the parentals, what they do is they send him to his room. They accept his payment. They, they send him to his room, and they make clear that even though you're the one who's guilty, and he's the one who's innocent, he will pay for your mistake, and he will earn you, uh, their forgiveness towards you by going to his room. And as long as your brother is in his room, you are not cleared from that crime, right? As long as he's in that room, you, you know that, that that penalty is still being paid. Until his door opens, you know that punishment is still being paid. But once that door is open and his room is empty, you know. You know that that penalty's paid. You know that it's been completed. You know that you're forgiven and that justice has been satisfied. See, the resurrection is a lot like that. It tells us that the death of Jesus was enough. It was enough to atone for our sins, to reconcile us to God. And Jesus doesn't just save us from sin. He actually renews the whole universe. He renews the cosmos so that even things like disaster and decay will be no more. You can't separate the cross from the empty tomb. Together, they show us that Christ paid it all and that his victory is ours. And that is why the resurrection is so central to the human story. Because it undoes the works of sin and evil on humanity.
It reverses the effects of death and decay on creation. And it ushers in the power of God to make all things new. The resurrection of Jesus is hope breaking into our hopeless world. Number two, the resurrection is historically true. The resurrection is historically true. We see clues of this in the next two verses in chapter 15, where it says that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, verse 5, it says he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, who's Jesus' brother, and then to all the apostles. So here's what Paul's getting at. Paul's saying, look, the gospel, the gospel is a historic event. He's like, look, any of these people who are still alive, who, who saw this, who, who experienced this, you can talk to them. Like, this really happened. That's Paul's point. Paul's saying that the gospel, the resurrection, is an announcement of a historic event that actually happened. So look, when I ask you the question, what is Christianity, like we might be tempted to say, you might be tempted to say that Christianity is like primarily about a way of life, right? Like you kind of go to church, you do some good things, uh, like that's what Christianity is. But, but, but to say that, and this is the whole point, Christianity is not about what we do. Christianity is about what Jesus has done. It's about a historic event. Everything about this passage of Scripture shows us that. That's why Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, he says, is in vain. In other words, it's useless, and so is your faith. I mean, he just straight up says, look, if Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, then your faith is useless. Our preaching, this thing that we do, is meaningless. And it's helpful for us to understand the significance of this when we unpack the word preaching. Like when, we, when, you, when you hear that word preach or preaching, like what do you think of, right? Maybe you think of a, a, a pulpit, right? Uh, something that looks like a lot cooler than this stand right here. Right? Like maybe, maybe you're thinking of like a guy on a corner with a Bible like uh, yelling at people. Or, or something, right? right? Like, tip, typically, like, that's what we think of when, when, when we think of preaching, right? Like this didactic form of, of talking. But man, when you get to the real meaning behind the word preaching, you understand the significance of the gospel and the resurrection. Because the original Greek word for preaching is kerygma, which is, uh, is translated in that verse there for preaching. It, it had this unique meaning. And it's a, it's a word that literally means that which is publicly proclaimed by a herald, right? So you'd have somebody who's like this herald that would, that would go into town in the first century and he would publicly proclaim some news. That's the way that news was spread in those days. They didn't have online news outlets. They didn't have Google or Twitter or Facebook, thank God, right? Like, they didn't have that back then. They had these heralds whose job it was to run into the town square and shout the news that everybody needed to know. You see, back in college, uh, I was the, the editor-in-chief of our, our, our college's school magazine, and we had these, these talks in class about the difference between, between what we call hard news or soft news. Hard news is news that everyone needs to know because it actually makes a difference on your life. 
It actually bears weight on our lives. Like, we have a new president. Our country is now at war. Like, that's hard news. Soft news is things like consumer tips or opinion pieces or gossip columns. News that is of no real consequence and doesn't really bear weight on our lives in any practical sense because they just don't really matter. I saw a few headlines this week. Uh, Here's a couple of them. One of them said, the world's oldest gorilla celebrated its 65th birthday. Woohoo! right? Uh, Amazing. Another one is Elvis's car resurfaced, right? Like, that's soft news, right? Cool little factoids. Doesn't really bear weight on our existence. But in the first century, when this was written, The only kind of news that was spread, the only kind of news that would get described by the word kerygma, that would get described as being preached, the only kind of news that was spread that way was what we would call hard news. You wouldn't have the town herald like ride into the center of town and say, you'll never guess what Will Smith did to Chris Rock at the Oscars, right? Like, you'll never get that. He got in one little fight. We all got scared, right? Like, you'll never hear that. You'll never hear that. Because they'd be like, dude, who cares? We don't even know who Will Smith is, right? And that's an interesting little fact, but like, like, that bears no weight on our existence. It was only hard news, news of actual events that affects everything. And the very word preaching that was used to describe the spread of the Christian message is that same word, kerygma. That's because people in the first century believed that this really happened. And people really needed to know because it actually bears weight on our entire human existence. This is why Paul is so clear to say, look, he appeared to Peter, Cephas, he appeared to the 12. He's saying, look, this resurrection actually happened. If you want, you can go ask those guys. I mean, you have to notice the striking contrast between Paul's invitation and other religions of the day. You see, the prophet and founder of other major religions, they'll, what they'll do is they'll conveniently uh, claim that it, like an angel or something like that appeared to, the, to only them. And they'll say, like, look, I know no one else saw it, but you just got to trust me, all right? And everyone's like, okay, right? But not here. Paul's like, look, if you don't believe me, go talk to these guys. I mean, talk to Cephas, any of the 12. I mean, there's several hundred of these people that you could talk to as well. And it's also worth mentioning that before the resurrection, these disciples and apostles that Paul's talking about, these 12, they had a bad reputation after Jesus died and before he appeared in the resurrection because almost every single one of them abandoned Jesus on the night of his arrest when he needed them the most. But after the resurrection, after the resurrection, these disciples, man, they were transformed into bold witnesses. They became preachers in the truest sense of that word, spreading the hard news of what they'd seen and what they had heard, even to the point of dying as martyrs for their message. You see, what I want you to see is that Christianity is not about blind faith. It's the kind of religion where honest and curious skepticism is truly welcome. 
Seriously. For the record, like we value, we value honest questions at this church. And so if you have any doubts or hang-ups about Jesus, his resurrection, the church, like we don't want you to be shy about that. Like, please, like honestly, please talk to us. Like we, we, we love that. Many of us in this room were there once too. And look how Paul concludes his case for the resurrection by saying, he says, basically, I saw him too. He says in verse 8 and 9, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See, Paul, Paul used to be an enemy of Jesus. And now he's a preacher preaching the hard need of Jesus, which leads to our last point, that the resurrection literally changes everything. It changes everything. See, Paul wasn't a friend or family member of Jesus. He was a cold-hearted enemy of Jesus Christ. He had a deep-seated hatred for Jesus and his followers. The first time we actually learn about the Apostle Paul is in the book of Acts when he oversaw the stoning of Stephen, who's one of the first Christian leaders. And Paul made it his personal mission at that time to persecute, arrest, beat, ridicule, even maybe even murder anyone who worshiped Jesus or associated themselves with Jesus. That was his mission until he saw and experienced the resurrected Jesus. After seeing the risen Jesus, Paul went from being a murderer of Christians to being a pastor of Christians. He went from someone who put Christians to death to someone who preached hope at their funerals. He went to devoting, from devoting his life to destroying Christianity to surrendering his life to, to just spreading it. The apostle to the Gentiles, that's what he was called. He spread the good news to everyone who was a non-Jew. And he paid the ultimate price for giving his life in service of Jesus. He was made homeless, beaten, on the run, imprisoned, eventually killed for one single reason. He would not stop preaching about what he considered of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. You see, the resurrection changes everything. Grace changes everything. Read Paul's words in verse 10 with me. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's saying, I used to be these things. I used to be an enemy. I used to be a persecutor. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, God's grace towards me was not in vain. In other words, it totally transformed me. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God is at the center of the resurrection story. Christians are a people of the resurrection and a people of transforming grace. We are all sinners 
who fall short of God's glory. That's what the book of Romans tells us. That means we don't merit, we don't deserve, we don't earn God's love. None of us can claim that God owes it to us to be, to be kind to us or to forgive us or to embrace us or endure with us or to deliver us into etern- his eternal joy and presence. Like, like none of us can claim that God owes that to us. But by grace, that offer, that offer is given freely. And it's all of grace. That's why Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God not only saves us from our old ways, he also saves us to a whole new way of life. I love the way that N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, puts this. He says, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ, and you're now invited to belong to it. Easter tells us that death has died, that hope is here, and that you and I are invited to get in on it. That's why we can all say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is the good news of the resurrection King Jesus. If you're a Christian here this morning, the chances are that at any moment that you've found yourself maybe lacking faith or angry or anxious or ashamed, there's a good chance that it might be because you have forgotten what it tastes like to be changed by the resurrection. You've forgotten how central it is to your existence. But when you sit and gaze and marvel at the glory and beauty of Jesus in the gospel, just amazed at his life, death, and resurrection, then that changes everything about who you are. It changes everything about how you live, about how you view the world, and where you place your hope. Are you living your life in such a way that the only way it makes sense is that if Christ is risen from the dead? does your life look just like the rest of the world, filled with the same possessions in the world, clinging to the same comforts and securities of the world? Or is it marked by the resurrection? Don't ever get over the power of the resurrection in your life. This is why Paul asked in verse 19, he says, or he says in verse 19, if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You want your life to count in this world? Then live your life with the resurrection in mind. Live your life, lead your family with God's purposes in your heart. Follow Jesus, do what his word puts on your heart, knowing that life is short, death is near, Resurrection is real and everything has changed.
because of it. And if you live your life with that in mind, if you live your life with that hope in front of you, then you have not lived your life in vain. King Jesus is a king unlike any other king. He's a king who went to the cross for us. Because of him, you no longer have to be ashamed of your sin. You no longer have to be afraid of evil. You no longer have to worry about death. Let the resurrection give you incredible hope and confidence. Let it draw your heart to a Savior who's real and who's risen. And let him give you a new purpose to live for and a new hope for eternity. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.